Well, today, um, the nation will be split in thirds. A third of the people will be happy about the outcome, a third will be disappointed, and a third just won't care very much. But here we are, and, uh, and so, yes, at the end of the day today, there will be a new NFL champion, but isn't it glorious to know that we serve an eternal and risen champion? Amen? Jesus is our champion, the champion of the world. So we want to participate this morning and continue to reflect on our memory verse for the month of February. It comes from the chapter that we're going to be studying over the course of the next uh, six or so weeks together from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we continue in our study, it's verse 10. Let's say it together this morning. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And we are actually going to, oh yes, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, I know we're in the habit of that. We were actually going to reflect a little bit on that verse this morning as we get into our study. A number of weeks ago, there was a writer for the New York Times who wrote an opinion piece that uh, was looking at the trauma that's come upon the American church largely as a result of the pandemic. And I thought his observations were rather thought-provoking. I think they were insightful. Uh, and in the course of his article, he happened to quote a man whose name is Tim Dalrymple, and he's currently the CEO of a well-known uh, international evangelical publication called Christianity Today. And I thought Dalrymple's insights were interesting. He said this, quote, as an evangelical, I've found the last five years to be shocking, disorienting, and deeply disheartening. One of the most surprising elements is that I've realized that the people who I used to stand shoulder to shoulder with on almost every issue, I now realize that we are separated by a yawning chasm of mutual incomprehension. I would have never have thought that this could happen so quickly. End quote. Perhaps for those of us who are here in the building today or even joining with us online, uh, we've experienced this separation at one level or another in our own lives. We've seen division in many arenas within our country. Um, maybe we've recognized it in our own church. Maybe we've seen it in relationships we had where we used to be able to discuss and talk openly about politics or social matters. But now it seems so difficult to navigate those conversations. And as I reflect and as I contemplated on the words from this op-ed, I wonder if part of what has contributed to this chasm among friends is that we somehow have corporately and perhaps even personally lost our grip on the matters that should be given first priority. A number of months ago, I was doing some personal writing and personal reflection during my morning devotional time. And the following quote came to mind, and I actually uh, wrote it down. Um, I think this will work. Uh, 
I said this, Jesus has never lost his grip on the church. Perhaps the reason there's so much division in the church today is because we, as the church, have loosened or even lost our grip on Jesus. Well, good news. We have good news. As long as we are here on earth, it is never too late for us to readjust, to reprioritize, or to tighten our grip on the matters that are of first importance. And this is exactly what Paul is intending to do in our text today. His aim is to reorient a diverse and divided church that existed in Corinth around the matters that should be given first priority. And today we're going to begin a study that's going to take us up to Easter. This is one of the most provocative and powerful chapters in all of the Bible. I, I honestly believe we could spend the next three years in this chapter and probably not unpack all of the nuggets that there are for us in it. There is so much here. But in this chapter, Paul is reminding the church of the message that is most important to proclaim. What are the matters that should be given first priority as a church? What are the truths that should be unifying and that we should be clinging to as congregations? When there are matters that threaten to divide and separate us, what can we come back to as a community that gives us hope and reminds us both of the mystical and the tangible realities that pertain to our faith? And Paul is going to address these questions and many more as we spend the next five weeks in chapter 15. Then we'll break for Global Outreach Conference and we will appropriately conclude our time in chapter 15 on Easter Sunday. There is so much here for us to unpack and to uncover together. I'm, I'm excited to get to do it with all of you who are in the building and those of you who are with us online. And before we get to it, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11 today. We're going to need to ask Jesus to help us as we explore this text this morning. So let's pray. Father, we open your word today as a community, as a state, as a country, as a nation, as a world that in many ways has seen great division. And in many ways, Lord, ever before us is the amount or the uh, massive influence of bad news, difficult news, troubling news. And yet, Father, we have in your word the most glorious news that any of us could ever hear or receive or stand on. And Paul begins to unpack that before us today, Father, and our prayer is that as we explore this text together, as we look at your word, that your spirit would be at work even now, encouraging our minds, sharpening our hearts, preparing us to receive the good news that you've prepared for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we're so thankful for Jesus, and we know that it's by his power that we walk from this place on Sunday morning, ready and invigorated in many ways, renovated, reshaped, even reformed to take your word and to live it in a way that's life-giving and sustaining in the communities that you place us in. Father, help us to be salt. Help us to be light by the power of your word as it instructs us 
and informs us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. What a reminder. We need to be reminded that there is good news in this world. Amen? There is good news, good news to be proclaimed, good news to be received, good news to to be absorbed and held and shared with others. Paul spent much time in this letter addressing many of the problems and the issues that plagued the church in Corinth. He has in this letter directed and ordered the priorities of the church. He's defined and described the ways in which inhabiting the crucified Messiah should motivate us to look and to live differently in this world. He has guided this congregation towards appropriate applications of love within community. And now Paul moves to remind us of the greatest and the most glorious and hopeful news that we've ever heard or received. Look again at verses 1 to 2. This is beautiful. Now I would remind you, sisters and brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. It was Christ, it was Jesus, who had sent Paul to preach the gospel. It was through the good news that Paul became to the people as a father in Christ Jesus. And this good news motivated in Paul and the other apostles the love and endurance that was required for sustained ministry effectiveness. And through the proclamation of the gospel message, Paul and the other presenters came to understand their purpose. Paul even concluded this at one point. 
in his letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 9, he said this. Woe to me if I do not do what? Preach the gospel. And the good news, it changed the course of Paul's life. It was the power that God used to transform Paul from a powerful religious zealot who persecuted Christians and sought to destroy the early church to a man who was subdued by God's grace and commissioned to partner with Jesus in the building up of his church. But we're going to get to more on that a little bit later. Paul has reminded us in these two verses of the nature of the gospel and how it is used of God as the primary tool through which God builds his church. We proclaim it, it is heard, it is received, it's embraced or absorbed, and then by its power, it is saving us as we cling to it, enduring to the end, proving its transformative power and effectiveness in our lives. Friends, the gospel is not just a tool that God uses to transform us into the image of Christ and bring us to a saving knowledge of Christ. But it is also the tool that he gives us to possess. One that is to shape and sharpen and animate us. One that we are actually to be regularly sharing with others. There is so much negative, difficult, even bad news in the world today. Why not cling to the eternal quality of the greatest news that has ever been proclaimed. And clinging to the content of this message and holding on and enduring to the end proves the quality of our faith. And it demonstrates to both the not yet believing and the believing world that our faith is not in vain. And so if in verses 1 and 2 Paul is describing for us the nature of the good news, what are the core elements of this message? And in verses 3 to 7, Paul is going to rehearse with us the primary themes of the gospel's message. Look down at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance or first priority, we, would, we could say, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, Paul begins with the death of Messiah. His death. The crucified Lord will inform the patterns and the attitudes and the habits of Paul's ministry. And friends, for us who are gathered here today, they should inform the patterns and the attitudes and the habits of our life and ministry as well. We serve a crucified Lord. One who laid down his life. One who gave up his rights and freedoms. One who unveiled his glory. Who left his throne. Who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But came to live with us. And came to die for our sins. Paul actually has begun this letter 
with what many biblical scholars have described as his ode to the cross. You remember, flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go ahead in your Bibles or on your devices. If you turn back, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at the last line of verse 17 in chapter 1. It's actually serving as a bridge that's moving us into Paul's iterations of the cross and a crucified Messiah. Let's rehearse this message again. Look at verse 17 in chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Then down in verse 23, Paul proclaims, but we preach Christ, what? Crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 2, what does Paul say? What does he conclude? For I decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Crucified. And so at the opening of his letter... Paul communicates that it would be the crucified Lord that would inform his ministry while he was with the people of God in Corinth. And now in verse in chapter 15, as we go back to chapter 15 and Paul begins to close his letter. He's reminding us and rehearsing with us and showing us how in his own life, the resurrected Lord fueled the fires of his faith motivated his love and compelled him to endure and persevere even in the face of great turmoil, division and persecution. And so in this letter, then you have these beautiful bookends, the crucifixion and the resurrection, marking two very powerful one beginning and one end in this portion of Paul's letter. And it's just one of his most beautiful and influential pieces of literature that he wrote. Paul reminds us that all of this is happening in accordance with the scriptures. And of course, this becomes a sub-theme that is shaping his expression of the gospel. Paul's talking here about the Old Testament. When he says back in chapter 15 that this happened according to the scriptures... The New Testament, much of the New Testament and what we have today certainly had not yet been written or disseminated around the churches at this point in Paul's ministry. And so this reference to the scriptures, it would have stirred the Jewish imagination. Could Jesus have been the Christ? Could he have been the Messiah, God's anointed, the servant who was spoken of in Isaiah's prophecy? And Paul's answer is a resounding yes. He was. And just as the scripture said, the suffering servant suffered. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Remaining silent, he faced his death. He shed his blood, atoning for sin, inviting many daughters and sons into adoption as children of the living God. Friends, the contents of the gospel begin with an indicator that remind us of our problem with sin and our need for someone righteous to deal with this problem for us. Jesus, the righteous and just servant, solves our problem of sin through his death, 
burial and resurrection. Look again at verse 4 of chapter 15. It's not just that he died, but that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Also in accordance with the scriptures, Jesus would be buried among the rich. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9. His tomb was purchased by the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea. The man who was seeking the kingdom while he was actually putting into practice some of its most precious principles. But it was not just that Messiah died. And that he was buried. Indeed, the most glorious theme in the gospel is the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus conquered death. He rose from the dead. Amen? We serve a risen Savior. Amen? Amen. And we'll celebrate that in just a few weeks. The psalmist alluded... In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful follower to see the pit. And as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so too would the suffering servant experience this in the heart of the earth. But by the power of God at work within him, the Son, Jesus, broke free from the chains of death and took back up his life after he had laid it down, raising gloriously and victoriously, forever conquering death. All of this, friends, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they happened before the eyes of a watching world. These were not private events. They were not hidden from the public. In fact, as many of us know through ways that they've been interpreted and put on screens before us today in Hollywood, these events were in many ways a public spectacle. And they come with implications for both our personal and our corporate lives. Yes, it is important for us as individuals to recognize Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. To repent of our sins, confess our belief, and be saved by the power of the gospel. But with that, it is also important for us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus holds implications that are related to our corporate lives as well. First, let's look at how Jesus made his resurrection a public event And then we're going to talk further about the corporate and shared implications of our faith. Let's look down again at verses 5 to 7. Speaking of Jesus' resurrection and appearance, it says in verse 5, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Friends, through his appearances to all these people, Jesus made very clear to many the reality of his bodily resurrection from the dead. We might ask the question, why? Why did Jesus appear before so many as the risen Lord? What was the purpose of his appearances? 
And I think the answer to these questions begins to reveal to us some of the corporate implications of the resurrection. Church, in the resurrection of Messiah, we have a fulcrum moment in history. It's a catalytic event that animates or brings to life new creation and new beginnings. Think back with me. Just as in Genesis, at the beginning of the Bible, God breathed life into Adam in the garden, and Adam became living flesh. So now, in the resurrection, does Jesus, the true and greater Adam, breathe resurrection life into new bodies? And the church, we are the church, friends. This building is not the church. We are the church. Jesus breathes life into us. He animates us and gives us purpose for living. As the church, friends, we are new creation. Tangible evidence, seeable evidence of God's right-making work in this world as we proclaim the message of Messiah. Friends, God is at work through that message, drawing women and men, young and old, unto himself, breathing life into us, raising us from the dead, standing us up. And he doesn't just stand us up and tell us to stay there. He stands us up and he sends us back out to go get others. Go get others. We can't stay here, friends. We can't keep the news to ourselves. It's good news. And it's good news that needs to be shared with the world. The world. From, from the next door neighbor living right across the street or right next door to us. Perhaps the one who's had some experience with church. Or maybe even at some point in their life has been hurt by the church. Maybe, it's, maybe they've never been churched at all. To the person far off in another country who's unreached and has not yet heard the news. The good news needs to be shared, proclaimed, preached, and given to others. Church, this is what resurrection does. Resurrection initiates or launches the church towards God's purposes in the world in which he has planted us. The church then becomes like a living vehicle, a living vehicle that God is using today to sow the seed of his gospel all over the world. Friends, we are all called to be sowers. Every one of us. The Great Commission wasn't just given to a few. It was given to all who claim to be disciples of Jesus. Every one of us hold this good news and every one of us hold the great opportunity that comes with it to share it and proclaim it with others. The resurrection of Jesus initiated this dispensation of grace, the age of the church. Simply put, friends, without the resurrection, the events of Acts chapter 2, what we know as Pentecost, do not happen. They never happen apart from the bodily resurrection of Messiah. They're not needed. God's resurrection power 
in the person of the Holy Spirit both indwells individual believers and forms life-giving, faith-building, hope-inspiring, love-motivated communities where the people of God come together to serve one another and to serve their communities as salt and light. This is what the power of the gospel is doing as it is effective and working in our lives. The good news doesn't stop when we receive Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. That's a great thing. And we all need to do that. But it compels us and motivates us and moves us through the resurrection power of Jesus beyond these walls into the communities where he planted us and towards the people that he has called us to reach. And in this, we find, friends, that the gospel is good news for me and it's good news for us. And it must be both. Must be both. This is good news for the world. Why? Why does Jesus take such care to appear before such a broad spectrum of people in both private, individual, and corporate context? It's because the gospel has implications for both. And yes, it is difficult to understand the full measure of this. Paul sometimes refers to these realities in his letter as a great mystery, reminding us that our faith, while in some ways is tangible and we can grab hold of and see it, like in the church and in this community, there's also mystical components that we will not understand on this side of heaven. And so I I love what Paul does next because this has been his habit in this letter as we've studied. I think we've seen this over and over again. Paul doesn't just tell us. He is a great teacher in the model of Jesus. Jesus often didn't just tell. He also showed. And that's what Paul's going to do in verses 8 to 11. He's going to show us how the gospel renovated and transformed his life. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And to begin, friends, I think it's, it's a good for us to take note of how Paul continues to write of himself as he works with the people of God in Corinth. He began this in the beginning when he opened his letter. He talked about his own weakness. We remember studying that. He talked about how he came to the people with fear and trembling, not being good with his words or compelling enough for them. And now he's talking about himself as one untimely born. He's using words like he's the most unworthy He's indicting himself as a persecutor of the church. I love how with Paul, there is no hiding. He, he does not allow the people to place him on a platform which he does not belong. He wants them to have a true and a full knowledge of his past wickedness 
and his current weakness. Paul also wants the people in Corinth to see how dramatically the gospel changed and reoriented and reprioritized the course of his life. And the personal implications of the gospel transforms the hearts and minds and habits of individuals just like Paul. We see this. He was a man untimely born, yet one to whom Christ appeared. He went from the least and the most unworthy to be called an apostle to one of the greatest influencers and church planners of the early church. He went from a persecutor and a destroyer of Christians and the early church to a proclaimer of the gospel and a planner of churches all over, all over the ancient Near Eastern world. And just as for Paul, there was redemption and restoration and reconciliation from his previous ways of life. Friends, we too find that when we're transformed by the power of the gospel, when we confess our sins, and when we repent and we turn to God, and we believe that there is redemption, there is restoration, and there is reconciliation with God. God takes us from dead in our trespasses and sins. We know this from Ephesians 2. We got to read this beautiful chapter at Brother Don's home going yesterday. We got to read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. And be reminded of this reality that God takes us as people who are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he makes us alive together with Christ. By his grace, we sang of his grace this morning, beautiful grace. By his grace, he moves us from being at enmity with God to being in perfect union with him. How does that work? It's a mystery. He changes our status. Think about this, friends. He changes our status before salvation from orphaned to adopted. How beautiful is that? From old creation to new creation. From in the world to into the church. From enslaved to sin to free from sin. Facing death, now given life eternal. That's a transformation if I ever saw one. Amen? And if you are here today and you are in Christ, that's your story. That renovation that took place in your life, God did that. He did that. He did that in Paul's life. He did that in your life. And he's doing that in the lives of everyone who claim to know him today. And Paul pins this utter transformation to the quality of the good news that has had this continual and lasting impact on his life. And he encapsulates the continual effect of the gospel in a word that he'll use three times in verse 10. Would you look at verse 10 with me? And those of you that like to hunt for themes and words, see if you can find the word that appears three times in this verse. You Bible quizzers, you guys will be good at this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. What is the word? Grace. At the beginning of the letter, Paul's extended this grace to the church, 
reminding the church that they were recipients of this grace. Then he recalled with them how the measure of grace he had received informed the way that he was establishing the church. And now he's communicating how grace has personally established and formed him. Friends, Paul's words must be our words. His attitude here must be an attitude that we adopt and live by in this world which God has planted us and sent us into. By the grace of God, we are who we are. And His grace towards us has not been without effect. Rather, we are working harder than anyone, recognizing that it is not us who are at work, but God's grace within us that is moving us. Friends, knowing whom we are known by and how and where we fit within the scope of the most precious message in the world orders and prioritizes the rest of our lives. All of a sudden, friends, I don't know if you've seen this. I've definitely experienced this in this season. Perhaps you as well. All of a sudden, all that bad news that, that our national media wants to thrust out in front of us every day and, and make us consume and you know, open the newspaper and it's just this and that. And all of a sudden, that stuff just, hey, it's there. But we know the reality. We know the truth. We have hope. We have good news. Every single day, every single breath, every morning our eyes open, we have good news. So don't let all that bad news bring you down. Don't let all that bad news distract you and take you off course. Stick with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. We share this good news with others. We watch how Jesus helps people hear and see and be transformed by the message that He is Lord and that He saves. Jesus saves. Amen? This is good news. It's good news for a world that needs salvation. There's a Savior available. His name is Jesus. This is how the gospel worked in Paul's life and ministry. And friends, it should also be the way that the gospel is alive and at work in our own lives. Church, we have not been given a dead message, right? This message is alive, it's living, it's active. It's life-giving, it's effective, it works, and it should fuel us, motivate us, and move us. In this view, then, the vessel that God is using to distribute the message fades into the background as the message and its recipients are given priority. And we've seen this previously. Paul has done this already in his letter before. He gives the hearer and the message priority above himself. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or them, whoever it was, so we preach and so you believed. Paul didn't need all the credit. If there was anyone living back then that would have been a superstar in our churches today, it would have been Paul. If Paul was here today, We'd have a hard time not idolizing Paul. 
And we do this all the time with our faith leaders. And Paul had to work hard. And friends, we have to work hard at not doing this with individuals. Paul didn't want it. We don't want it. Our Savior is Jesus. That's who saves us. There is no pitting one teacher or one apostle in Paul's language or one early church leader against another, whether it was Paul or Apollos or Cephas or any one of the hundreds that had remained among the church. What mattered was that the message was preached and that the people who heard it would believe. And so we've asked this question quite a bit as we've studied this text together uh, throughout the last number of months. How might we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as His church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And friends, we live in an overwhelmingly not yet believing or unbelieving world. Reminded of the good news that we have heard, that we've received, believed, and were saved by. We rehearse its message in order to share it with others, revealing how God's grace has renovated our hearts and minds, reoriented our priorities, and has drawn us into life-giving communities with others who have also been transformed by the gospel. Friends, I want to leave you with an encouragement today. We're going to move into a time of communion, and I want you to bring this challenge that I'm going to share into this communion time with you, and then Our team's going to come and lead us in a song to prepare our hearts and minds to receive the bread and the cup. But I want to encourage you, friends, what we are seeing today, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15, we can do also. He's sharing his story. He's sharing his testimony. And friends, every one of you in this room have a story, have a testimony and you might sit here today and, and you might think, well, my story, my testimony, it's, I was raised in the church, I, I never really strayed, I, it, I don't really have anything that's that exciting to share. Friends, you have life-giving good news to share that's a part of your testimony. Because the reality for all of us is this, if we sit here today in a relationship with Jesus, it is by the grace of God that we were brought from dead in our trespasses and sins to life with Christ. And friend, that, friends, that testimony, it can be so simple. You don't have to, to struggle with it or wrestle with it or try to concoct or come up with some amazing story that's going to turn people's hearts. Yes, some people are gifted in that area and are able to do those kinds of things. But that doesn't have to be what we do. There is somebody at your job. There is somebody in your community. There is somebody maybe even next door. There is somebody, students, at your school. There is somebody maybe even in your home that needs to know, needs to hear, and needs to see the message of the gospel through your words and through your actions. And friends, sometimes it's as easy as walking up to someone who's struggling and saying, hey, it looks like you're down. What's going on? Could I help you? Could I pray with you? And maybe over the course of that, you start to begin a relationship and you can say, hey, you know, I used to feel that way a lot too. But because of Jesus' work in my life, he's transformed my heart 
my life, my mind. He's changed me. I don't worry about those things anymore or get caught up in them. He's given me freedom over them. And you know what? He's, he's actually drawn me into a life-giving community that is full of energy and opportunity for our family and our children to get engaged and get connected and to learn and to grow spiritually together and to be in relationship with other people who are like-minded and we build one another up and care for one another and bear one another's burdens. And every once in a while, we get together and we pray together. Every once in a while, we go out into the community and we do activities together in our community serving our local community. Hey, we have friends that we support all over the world that are sharing this good news with other people. I would love to invite you to come and participate in that community with me. Doesn't that sound like a community we'd all want to be part of? Yes, amen, right? And this is that community. Here we are on Sunday morning. This is that life-giving community that changes the world. The life-giving community that God is working through to change the world today. It's right here. And you have it within you. And we have it within us to take and to share it. And share about it with the people that he's brought into relationship with us. So as our team leads us. And it is well. I want you to hold that challenge in your heart. I want you to think about how you might share that good news this week. I want you to rehearse the good news of Jesus in your heart as you sing. So that when it's time for us to share in communion today. That that bread and that cup is full of meaning that maybe it hasn't had. In a number of months for you today. And I would remind you if you're here today. And you don't know this good news. You haven't received it yet. You have not yet found Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And given your life to him. Committed your life to him. Today's the day. You're hearing the gospel today friends. Do it now. If you're in your living room at home. Just get on your knees at your couch. And do it right now. Just say Lord I'm confessing that. I'm a person that struggles with sin and I need a savior to account for those sins for me. And I I believe that Jesus is that savior and that you brought him back from the dead and that he can forgive my sins. And I want him to be Lord of my life. Confess, believe. And today, this day could be the day of your salvation. And then I'm going to be and many in this community are going to be so excited to see how God lights a fire in your heart through reception of that good news so team would you lead us in singing and would we prepare our hearts and minds to receive communion